Well, hello friends. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I wanna welcome you into this space as we launch into our online teaching time together. We are in the middle of a teaching series on the topic of forgiveness here at Jericho Ridge. And our assumption is that now that you're not really seeing people outside of your family bubble, you're gonna be spending more time with a fixed group of people. And this will often mean that things will go well for a while, and then you will do something that ticks another person off and you will need to say, I'm sorry. And then the practice of forgiveness is going to kick in. And forgiveness really is about relationships. And we've been looking in this series at the different ways that that plays out. So we looked at the forgiveness that God offers to us. And then last week we looked at the components of saying we're sorry to God, a confession of repentance. And now today we're gonna explore the horizontal dimension of forgiveness or how it impacts our interpersonal relationships. So the questions that we're asking and answering are ones like, well, how do I know if someone's truly sorry? Or what if someone does something over and over and over and over again? Do I just have to keep on forgiving them? Or I've heard people talk about things like forgiving and forgetting, like doesn't that imply somehow that justice isn't done? And Jesus dives into these questions and more in Matthew chapter 18. Usually Christians like to jump in right into the verse of the how to correct someone else part of the chapter, which is verse 15. But I want to remind us that context matters when we're looking at these things. And so uh, at the start of this chapter, Jesus' original disciples are actually arguing with each other. They're jostling for position in Jesus' inner circle. Let's be frank, it was probably Peter, James, and John. And Jesus has to take them to school. He sets a child in the middle of the group and he says, listen, anyone who wants to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven has to become humble like this little child. And I can hear the disciples asking in their heads, okay, Jesus, but what if people really hurt me? What if they repeatedly hurt me? I mean, I can't just overlook that kind of stuff, Jesus. I might forgive, but I can't ever forget. So Jesus then goes on to help his followers understand how to relate to each other in the family of faith when relationships break down. And, and we need to be clear that this is when there is a sin-oriented rupture in relationships. This is not just when people have differing preferences over something. Jesus is going to lay down for us operational principles for life together in God's new family. This is not how to handle all disagreements at all times in your work setting or in other places. This is how to handle a disagreement when another person who identifies Jesus as King and Lord of their lives and you identify Jesus as that for you sins against you. So now let's go to Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 where Jesus says this, if another believer sins against you, Go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Verse 16, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. And then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. 
Jesus here has a very long history of Old Testament teaching on dispute resolution in his mind, stretching all the way back to Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, it says, Do not store or nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sins. Now, confronting someone can be, depending on your personality, pretty easy. But confronting someone with a deep spirit of humility is actually the hard part. And so Jesus says that it's best really in these situations to start privately. And the goal here, as with every single step of any process where relationship breaks down, is constructive dialogue which leads to repentance and reconciliation. You are to point out, in this instance, the area of sin not from a place of seeking to score points over another person, but to win over your brother or your sister. You see, friends, correction in the life of a follower of Jesus is always redemptive in nature. It's always rooted in and coming from a place of deep humility. Now, Jesus is also, I think, a realist, and he recognizes that just a one-off or private conversation will not always have the result of that person just falling to their knees in confession and repentance and saying, you're so right, I was wrong, forgive me. So Jesus then links back to another Old Testament teaching and practice, this time from the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 19, verse 15, where it says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the first century synagogue and similarly the local ecclesia, the gathered community of the people of God in a localized family-like community in the first century was the hub of social and religious life. It was a worshiping community, but it also had so many other functions, uh, like a community center, and it really functioned like an extended family. And so it also had like a quasi-legal content uh, and contribution when it came to arbitrating disputes among family members. So Jesus is, I think, assuming this context and assuming that this sin that you are confronting in the life of another person is an example of an ongoing unrepentant sin against members of the community. And many places in the New Testament, like 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians, we see that discussions are happening in the church about sins happening in the lives of persons in the church. And this is not an example of gossip or maliciously pouncing on and then publicly outing other people. This is saying that and recognizing that each of us as an individual has a responsibility and a relationship to the body or the family as a whole. And we, we don't think about this as often in our modern context, but when you engage in something like sexual sin outside of a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, your sin impacts the church because that's how family works. The actions of one family member have an impact on the lives of other family members. And this is also where we see this introduction of the two to three witness thing. See, 
it's possible for us in our individualistically oriented society to see, oh yeah, they didn't listen. We just gotta ratchet up the pressure on this individual, bring in a few other individuals so we can really hammer it home. But this is actually better seen as to safeguard the accused so that the sister or brother coming in to point out the offense doesn't come in with guns blazing and blow the person out of the water with potentially false accusations. Jesus is saying here, it would be best if you had other family members present because that's going to help ensure to the best of your ability and bear witness to the fact that you're gonna come with a correct spirit of humility and not one of spite or vindictiveness. And then if this doesn't have the intended effect, which is restoration, then the discussion moves to the whole family level. And again, this is not so that you can spread all the details of people's sin all over the place and shame them, but it's to recognize that if a family member is habitually and unrepentantly and openly sinning, it has impact on the family. Unchallenged, open sin spreads. People begin to say things like, hmm, that person in leadership, they're in leadership and they have a horrible temper and nobody around here ever challenges them or says anything. I guess it's just okay to lose your cool on other people in unhealthy ways around here. I can remember a day uh, when three of my friends set up a breakfast with me and they told me that I was not operating in my life from a place of humility. They talked about me being nice, but kind of domineering in my leadership. They were kind and they said that often I would be kind, but I was unrealistic and it was unhealthy in my expectations of other people. And then I would develop resentment toward people when they didn't do exactly what I told them to do exactly when. And when we moved out of that conversation, as they confronted me, I walked away feeling shame and conviction. I denied it, I got angry, but upon further reflection and the softening work of the Spirit in my heart, I knew that it was time for me to seek the forgiveness of others around me. I knew I needed to change my behavior if I was gonna maintain good relationships and God-honoring relationships with the people in my life over the long haul. So while I was really challenged by that, you know, we maintained excellent relationships and it was a real turning point for me. The challenge part is that Jesus here in Matthew chapter 18 gives the church and members of the church authority that she has often misused. See friends, there's two equally dangerous ditches that we can fall into. On the one side, just the ditch of high harmony. There's no challenge when people uh, openly and unrepentantly sin. And on the other side, we can fall into the trap of being a high authority place where we just use that authority to just keep people in line, excommunicate people, ban people, shun people. And that also can be unhealthy. And so Jesus continues his discussion in Matthew 18, 
with a little bit more insight onto how the family works. Let's keep reading in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, whatever you forbid on earth, you being those who are gathered, will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather as my followers, I am there among them. See, it's intriguing that we often just grab these verses out of context and talk about them in the terms of small group prayer times. But Jesus uses this to further underscore his discussion about forgiveness. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the two to three witnesses were to be the ones to cast the first stones against the offender. But here, Jesus flips that and says, they're to be the first two or three who care so deeply for their brother or sister who has left the way of Jesus. They're to be the first two or three that get together on their knees to cry out to God and pray for a person to come to a place of reconciliation and repentance. But if the person does not, then also with the spiritual authority that God has given to them, they make the decision for the spiritual health and vitality of the body that is binding. And friends, this is weighty stuff. We've done this a few times in our 15-year history as a congregation, and we have never done it lightly or quickly. But when we come to that place, we are agreeing with God that sin is sin and that this sin is going to impact not only the individual's relationship with God, but that a habitually sinning, professing Christian and a member at Jericho is a contradiction in terms that needs to be tended that's why we have, for example, a code of conduct for our leaders, for our staff, for our elders, and for others who hold teaching roles in the life of the church. It, it spills over into places like worship team members, because if you're on a worship team and you're singing, oh, and you're leading others and singing, Jesus, I surrender all of my life to you, but you're out there getting, say, publicly drunk or you're abusive to your spouse, and there's an incongruence happening in your life that's impacting the body and impacting the body's witness in the world and that needs to be tended to. And so Peter gets a sense of what Jesus is going for here and Peter, as he often does in the Gospels, is gonna reach for an attaboy from Jesus. You see, the rabbinical teaching at this time was that if you were to forgive a person who sinned against you, you would do that up to three times. And if the person sinned against you in the community a fourth time, it meant that they really were not understanding this whole forgiveness and repentance thing, in which would mean a change of direction. And so time number four, you could just forget about forgiving them. So Peter, Peter seeking his attaboy, says to Jesus, oh, hey, Jesus, what if um, I was to go like way above the three times? Like, what if I forgave a person seven times that was offending me. Like, that would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it, Jesus? And so Jesus actually tells a story about scorekeeping and how antithetical that approach is to life in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 18 from verses 23 to 35. It's the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king 
who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and children and everything he owned to pay the debt. That was common in the ancient world uh, for uh, practices of slavery. It's not condoned here, but it's just mentioned. And the man falls down before his master and begs him, please, please, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. Amazing, millions of dollars forgiven. But when the man left the king, verse 28, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him, begged for a little more time, be patient with me, please, I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor would not wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king, told him everything that had happened, and then the king called in the man that he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. See, I think this story, again, just gets lifted out and divorced from what evangelicals like to call the Matthew 18 principle, three easy steps if your brother sins against you. Jesus subversively tells people a story and says, oh, you want to rush out and point out all the sin in other people's lives. Let's talk about that for a minute. Here's a cautionary tale, a story of a man who didn't really understand God's grace. The guy owes like 150,000 years worth of salary to the king. It's actually the biggest number imaginable and in use in the ancient world. It was more money than was in circulation in the entire country at the time, billions of dollars. And so Jesus, in, in magnifying that man's debt, is shocking the system. Clearly, the guy can't repay this amount. And the man admits that the claim against him is just. And he says, well, well maybe, maybe you could just, like, forgive it? And the, the man, the king, is merciful and says, yes. And then... After he experiences that incredible mercy, he goes out, makes an immediate and harsh demand on a person who owes him one one millionth of what he owed the king. Again, the contrast is just laughable. But friends, the story that Jesus is telling is not about the money, it's about the heart. That's how Jesus concludes. He says, oh, if you're going around excluding others from the family because of minor offenses against you. You need to be aware. God has a pretty strong sense, not only of mercy, but also of justice. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured out to you. Verse 35, Jesus says, this is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So friends, 
When we put all of that together, the arguing about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the correcting of other people, the sense of binding and loosing, and the parable of the unforgiven debtor, what do we learn about forgiveness from Matthew chapter 18? Well, there's two things that I think are important for us to take away from this time. And the first thing is this. Forgiveness is about humility. See, you can't step into the life of another person without a deep and sincere care for that other person. And even if that person does not come to a place of repentance, your sincere desire for their flourishing and for them to be whole and well and restored to the life of the community is what needs to bleed into every interaction with them. It may not always result in repentance, but it cannot coexist with pride. Forgiveness is always about humility. Secondly, forgiveness is not about keeping score. Some people hear a story like this or look at the Matthew 18 principle and think, oh yeah, you mean just forgive and forget because you know the king just forgot about the whole debt. Uh, no, I actually don't mean that. The phrase never appears in the biblical discussion on interpersonal forgiveness and the king actually, even if he's forgiven the man, calls him back and there is harsh retribution. Because forgetting can actually lead to re-victimization. It can lead us to placing ourselves or others in harm's way. We're gonna talk a little bit more about this next week. But I love what my friend Kevin, who's a pastor in the prairie said in a conversation he and I were having about this last month on Twitter. He said this, one of the things that we miss is the role of genuine confession and repentance. We often expect victims to offer forgiveness, but we do not hold perpetuators to a similar emotional standard. We usually place all of the emotional burden on victims instead of asking the individual who caused the harm to do the hard work of repairing relationships. Forgiveness quickly becomes an easy ticket back into power for someone who's caused harm. But the cross is not an inconvenient way around the truth but rather it is a path to peace that acknowledges the fallenness of humans and their divine worth. See friends, the cross where Jesus offered himself for you and for me is not a place of scorekeeping. On it, Jesus chooses to bear our sin and our shame and to do away with it by self-giving love. And Jesus doesn't come back to us then and hold that over our heads and say, do you know how much you owe me? I mean, it's a lot. Like I gave my life for you and you have committed a lot of really horrible sins in your life, Brad. Do you wanna think about that a minute? That's not how Jesus operates. The point of the parable, in fact, is the lavish magnitude of God's forgiving grace and love. And it's an invitation for us to actually step into a place of agreement with God that if God has evidenced mercy to you and me when we repent, then we are not to withhold mercy from others if and when they repent. So we're gonna move into a time 
of communion. We're celebrating communion each of our weeks together in this series. And Jesse and the team are gonna lead us in a time of worship in song. But before we move there, I want to pause and just ask, is there anyone in the family of faith against whom you are keeping score? Anyone that you're holding a grudge against? See, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23, Jesus sets up a scenario where you're coming to worship and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you. And Jesus says very clearly, that would be the time not to press into further worship and song. Just leave your sacrifice there at the altar. You need to go, be reconciled to that person, and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And see, the same can be said if you have something against someone. So in this time of celebrating communion, I want you to just pause. And if God brings that to mind, any offense that you have caused or anyone who has offended you, just pause the live stream right now and deal with it. Getting that relationship right, offering forgiveness from your heart is way more important than singing a few songs or tracking with us to the end of this digital service. See friends, communion, it's like a family meal and the table and a family setting is supposed to be a place of free flowing conversation and connection. And so if there are attitudes or actions that have created a blockage there, you need to tend to them. And you need to ask God for the humility to either confess and seek that from another or offer it to another person in the family of faith. So as we move into our time of communion, let's pray together. Reconciling God, we would rather gossip about those who sin against us than speak to them privately. We would rather parade our wounds for all to see and quietly working toward forgiveness and reconciliation. Help us choose the harder road, the road that opens possibilities for real healing, real forgiveness, and real growth in your spirit. Help us place the best interests of our community and of faith above our own need for public vindication. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.